0: Thank you that we have this opportunity together to search the scriptures, to grow in grace as we grow in our knowledge of Jesus. So Father, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all our hearts will be pleasing to you, God. Amen. I said to P- Peter uh, um, sent me a couple of emails this week uh, ahead of Sunday, which I didn't pick up, and, and then I phoned John on Friday. Uh, to touch base, and he didn't pick up my call. So it was good that we had some time this morning. And I said to Peter, Peter, how long shall I talk for? And he said, Well, about 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Um, and I said, you, you don't have a clock in the church. And he said, What do you say, Peter? You said, Deliberately. Deliberately. Um, that causes me some degree of, of anxiety um, uh, because I know I have a tendency to talk and, and, and sort of talk. Um, so I am going to look to Peter to give an indication at about 15 minutes, if that's all right. But I don't want to be constrained, but, but uh, even so, I know we're all together and the children will be coming back in. Is that okay? Great. Okay. You know, there are many different causes of doubt. Some doubt is caused by ignorance. Ignorance of matters of faith, of, of basic Christian teaching and truths. Many of the young people that we work with and the families that we work with at Romsey Mill would have limited knowledge, understanding of the Christian faith. Uh, this was illustrated for me a while ago when one of our staff members was delivering a literacy course to a group of young parents and uh, we, we looked look to find ways to... Um, uh, to raise questions about life and faith and introduce the Christian faith, not imposing it, but introducing it. And we felt there was an opportunity to introduce one of the Bible stories, one of Jesus' parables, into a literacy lesson, and almost to do a little literacy um, study on on the parable of um, the Good Samaritan and the parable of the lost son. And what we found was really interesting is, is that of this group of about a dozen young parents, there was only one of them, ...that had previously come into some contact with these two parables. So for many people, doubt is as a result of being ignorant of of Christian faith. For some people, doubts um, they have doubts because of a major philosophical stance... uh, ...a chosen way of looking at things that would necessarily undermine another way of seeing the world... So an example of that would be uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, The God Delusion, various other books that he's written. He's very proactive in wanting to convince people that religion, that faith um, is something that shouldn't be believed. Um, And that's a philosophical, it's a worldview place that he takes. Some people doubt, or in some cases doubt is fostered not by a deliberate philosophical choice having looked at questions and wrestled with issues or come to a place because you don't want to believe other things a priori but for some other people that doubt comes about not by sort of a major decision but by 10,000 atomistic little choices along the way choices we make in life about who we'll be friends with what sort of job we'll do, what place our work will have in our life, what place we give to family, what place we, we, we give to community, uh, the choices we make about what we watch and how we'll spend our time and what we'll do with our money. And all these little choices along the way, these thousands of thousands of atomistic choices can lead to a place where we begin actually to doubt the Christian faith, even if we've come from a place of, 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 of identifying as a Christian. And that's because our lifestyle And those little choices that we make aren't consistent with a Christian worldview. And at some point, if that is the case, if those little choices aren't consistent with the big picture, doubt starts to come in. Some doubt is caused by sleep deprivation. So some of us who are overworked perhaps need to take that on board. Some people go through doubts because they go through a huge crisis in life. Perhaps it's the death of a family member or a close friend. Perhaps it's 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 an issue on the world stage, the tsunamis, the, 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 the earthquakes. How can we believe in a good God, a God who loves when these sorts of things happen. And it's some of those big questions or those crises that cause people to doubt. Now, why am I going through this list of different causes, different reasons for people doubting? Why is that? I certainly haven't exhausted the list. So, why is it? Well, it's for this reason um, it's because all those different sorts of reasons for doubting are addressed either directly or indirectly, in the Bible. But as we look at Thomas's story this morning, as recorded for us in John's Gospel, what we shouldn't think is that Thomas's doubt that's described in this chapter represents all kinds of doubts. It's a particular sort of doubt or doubting that Thomas has. And so Jesus addresses Thomas' issues specifically. And other doubts would would be and are addressed in different ways in the Bible. So what I'm saying is this. That Thomas's story is not a universal answer to every kind of doubt. I want to say three other things about doubt before we move into the story. Firstly, doubt is part of the human condition. To be human means that we live with doubt. The second thing I want to say is that all people live by faith it's not that some of us choose to live by faith because we've chosen to believe certain truths certain realities for example about christian faith and others who choose not to believe in a particular religion or faith are not people who live by faith actually we are all people who live by faith. Could spend a lot longer on that, but we haven't got time. And the third thing I would say is this, is that doubt can be a very positive, constructive means of our growing in faith. If you want to look at this further, a book I'd recommend by a guy called John Ortberg. He's an American pastor and author called Faith and Doubt. Really good book to take a look at. So, we have to look at Thomas's story carefully to see what he's doubting and why. And what kind of answer is brought to Thomas by Jesus, if we're to understand what the Bible is saying? And basically, there are three things I want to say, or, or I want us to look at. I not, not, don't usually do the three-point thing, but this morning, there seem to be three things that I want to say. Firstly, we're going to be thinking about um, the cry of the disappointed sceptic. You know, we have Thomas's cry of disappointment and then we have the adoration of the amazed sceptic, Thomas's statement that he makes to Jesus as Jesus appears to him, my Lord and my God. And then there's something that we can learn from the story of Thomas that, that serves us. So we're thinking about how we are served by the, the change in this sceptic, okay? A bit of, bit of setting the stage for a minute. Jesus had been crucified. And we need to understand, quite frankly, that the disciples hadn't expected that to happen. They had thought, because of Jesus' miraculous powers, because of his apparent authority, they had thought uh, uh, that that Jesus was the promised hope, the, uh, the hope from the earlier part of the Bible, that he was Messiah, that he was the Christ, that he was... God's people's promised champion, that he would set up justice in the kingdom, that he would bring about a revolution for God's covenant people. But instead, Jesus falls foul to political corruption, he's brought to a trial, Uh, he's charged with being an insurrectionist, a rebel, and he's put to death. The Romans had three ways of executing people, and crucifixion was the worst. And it was a form of of, uh, uh, death sentence that was for non-citizens, for slaves, for scumbags, for rebels. And so Jesus suffered the pain and the shame of that. So that's the first thing they weren't expecting. And the second thing the disciples weren't expecting, they weren't expecting Jesus to come back from the dead. Even though Jesus had told them on a number of occasions that he will suffer, he will die, and he will come back from the dead. Even though he told them again and again. So what's going on here? Why didn't they get it? We have the benefit of hindsight. But for these guys, I imagine, I imagine, that in they're saying to themselves, well, Jesus Jesus is always saying these, uh, these enigmatic, these symbolic-laden things. He, he says deep, deep things. And so they, I imagine they put it in that sort of category, but they didn't believe that it was real. They didn't believe that it was real. And then what we have in chapter 20 are three different stories and, and three different encounters. The encounter, firstly, that Mary Magdalene has with Jesus as she visits the tomb sees that Jesus' body has been removed or seems to be missing from the tomb, goes back and gets some of the other disciples who come back to the tomb, look for themselves, see that the tomb is empty, believe that the tomb is empty, believe what Mary Magdalene has been saying. They rush back. Mary Magdalene stays in the tomb and then has this encounter, first with two angels, through tears. She has this encounter with two angels. Perhaps it is that uh, it's most often through tears that we encounter angels. And then she comes out from the tomb and she encounters what she believes first to be a gardener and then she comes to know to be Jesus, risen, transformed. And then we have, on the same day, the first day of the week, the first day of new creation, we have Jesus appearing to the other disciples, to the, to the ten apostles. Ten because one of the apostles, Judas, we know, had committed suicide because he had been... Um, Deeply involved in Jesus' arrest and his death. And Thomas, because he wasn't there. So Thomas wasn't there, and Jesus appears to the disciples. And the disciples, the other apostles, talk to, to Thomas, don't they? And they try to persuade Thomas of what they've seen, that Jesus is alive, that he met with them, that they saw the scars in his hands, the hole in his side. And so this is where we pick up the story Verse 24, now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the master, we've seen the Lord, but he said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hands in his side, I'll not believe. Now what's going on here? What sort of, what sort of doubt, what sort of unbelief is going on here? Well, I think for Thomas, I mean, if you read back through John's gospel, there's a couple of points in which we, uh, we we bump into, we encounter Thomas. And he seems in those places to be someone who doesn't suffer fools lightly and, and, and you know, uh, fairly dour, fairly, you know, practical, down-to-earth kind of guy. You know, at one point he, he, he suggests that, you know, if, the, if they if they go with Jesus, they're likely to die, and so we might as well go with Jesus and die. And at another point, he seems to be having a bit of a difficulty because he's saying, well, Jesus doesn't seem to be helping us to understand enough. A couple of places. Look back. Have a look at those later. But I think for Thomas here, you know, one thing we can say is this. Thomas isn't... isn't um, uh, he hasn't adopted some sort of materialist philosophy where he comes to doubt belief in God, only believes what he can see and feel, you know, you know matter and, and energy. Thomas is a, is, a, is a Jew. He believes in God. He's a monotheist. He, be, he believes uh, the stories of God's people as we have them for us in what we call the Old Testament, that first two-thirds of the Bible. Thomas believes those things. So it's not that he's not believing God. He trusts God. He's a devout man. What is it that's going on here then? Well, I think it's this. I think it's that Thomas doesn't want to be... You can imagine a situation perhaps where the disciples have gone through highs and lows emotionally. They've witnessed the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion of their master, their teacher... And perhaps it is that they're, you know, they're back in their room and, and they're thinking. Well, yeah, they're saying to Thomas, "Well, you know, Thomas." Um, or Thomas is thinking, well, you, you, "Well, yes, Jesus was crucified, but 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 spiritually, he's alive. He's still with us." And I think, you know, if that's the case, Thomas is saying, "Listen, that that that's not that's not good enough for me. I need something more. That, than, I, you know, I don't want to be duped. I don't I don't want to be taken in. I, you know, it has to be more than." Um, a spiritual thing. There has to be more to this. The cry of the disappointed sceptic, unless I see his hands, unless I see the holy side. He wants to make the connection between Jesus, the body in the tomb, Jesus, the body out of the tomb. You know, so you get sometimes these cheesy um, uh, kind of murder mystery type plays where, you know, it, it turns out to be that there's a twin. Do you know kind of the story? Really, really kind of cheesy, you know. There's some twin thing going on and, and you work out at the end, ah, there's two identical twins and that's how they, you know, they committed the crime and didn't get caught and all the rest of it. You know, Thomas kind of wants to avoid this situation where, you know, you know somebody perhaps looking like Jesus. Because they wouldn't have had the best benefit of photographs, Facebook. Um, photocopies, you know, mobile phones to which we can look at. Imagine a situation before any sorts of images like that. Much more difficult, even though Jesus had been seen by many people, more difficult to identify. Thomas wants to be sure about that. The cry of the disappointed sceptic. But then, the adoration of the amazed sceptic Now, I don't know about you, but on the face of things, I kind of think, well, that's quite an extreme shift, isn't it? To move from, you know, I'm not going to believe until I see, to this this amazing statement. Worshipping Jesus as Master, as Lord, and as God. The first time in John's Gospel we see these two things being brought together as a witness statement, other than what we have in the prologue right at the beginning of John's Gospel, where we read... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. It's almost like we're coming full circle as we get to the end of John's Gospel. Thomas declares, my Lord and my God. How do we get there? Well, I don't think it's simply to to be able... I mean, normally he probably would have said, wow, Jesus... You know, imagine this. I can imagine Thomas saying, wow, Jesus you are alive. I can imagine that. I can imagine Thomas saying with all the other disciples there, okay, so they were telling the truth. See, I can imagine that. But but for Thomas to say, my Lord and my God, how did he get to that point so quickly? And I think it's because of this. Between the first encounters that Jesus had with people after his resurrection and, and, and the 10 disciples in that room, And the encounter where Thomas was present, a week has passed. So you can imagine, and if we look at some of the other Gospels, there's other stories of Jesus Jesus appearing to others. So I think in that week, you can imagine Thomas, can't you, kind of listening to these people saying, well, we saw Jesus. He's alive. He's risen. Hearing these rumors of the tomb being empty. Probably word was getting around the authorities as well. Where's the body gone? And Thomas probably, knowing the scriptures knowing the hope that's laid down in the scriptures, is starting to make those connections, yeah? About what Jesus had said, that he would need to suffer, that he would die, but then on the third day he would rise again. Thomas making those connections, making the connections between what Jesus had taught and what the Old Testament, as we know it, scriptures, God's people's scriptures had said, and then also encountering, meeting, Jesus alive, And I think that's what we get to. That's why we have the adoration, thank you, of the amazed skeptic. And finally, the service of the change skeptic. What, it, what is it for us? And I'd say this, in a couple of minutes. there's a risk with this, particularly as we, we read on verse 29. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And I think sometimes there is a risk that we can interpret this in a certain way, which I don't think is uh, going to be helpful. I don't think it's right. And that is that what Jesus is teaching is actually it's better not to have faith based on evidence, but, but, but actually what's more important is a faith that's simply based on believing you know, getting to that place where subjectively we've made the choice to believe. That it's our, you know, it's almost, it has, to, it has to be about our preference to choose and to believe. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. I think what Jesus is saying here, he's saying, Thomas, you have seen and you have believed. But there is coming a time very soon when I will not be with you, when I'm going to return to the Father. And for a long time, people won't have the opportunity, as you have has, had, to see me, to touch me, to see the scars, to, to experience me with you. And so it is for those people, Jesus says, for us gathered here, that Jesus is saying, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And the connection between what Thomas said and what Jesus says is the fact that Thomas and his story and the stories that John collects together in his gospel and the other gospel writers collect in their gospels and Paul and others write into the New Testament letters are are the witness to, the eyewitness accounts of what they saw and what they they experienced. And it's not that we only have that because we have the promise for many of us, that we have received the gift of the Holy Spirit who witnesses to those things. We've experienced God with us. We connect that with the witness that we have in scriptures, the stories that are told. We look at the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. and We come to appreciate how good the evidence is for the bodily resurrection of Jesus. I want to finish with a poem. And then we close. I came across uh, this poem a while ago it 's it 's a poem by a a poet who wrote um, after the first world war just a terrible war, the first world war um, two thousand three hundred miles of of trenches and hundreds of thousands of people killed, you know, just to, just to advance, you know, a few feet across these trenches. And Edward Shillitoe was a little-known poet writing after the First World War. He wrote, he wrote a poem called Scars of Jesus, and i just read this and then we'll, we'll, we'll pray. If we have never sought you, we seek you now. Your eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn marks on your brow. We must have you, O oh Jesus of the scars. The heavens frighten us, they are too calm. In all the universe, we have no place. Our wombs are hurting us. Where is the balm? Lord Jesus, by your scars we know your grace. If, when the doors are shut, you then draw near, only reveal those bloodied feet and hands, we know today what wombs are. Have no fear. Show us your scars. We know you understand. The other gods were strong, but you were weak. They rode, but Jesus stumbled to his throne, meaning the cross. But to our wombs, only God's wombs can speak. And not a god has wombs, but you alone. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that Jesus did stumble to a throne. That he was obedient to death, even death on a cross. And that you, Father, because of his obedience, exalted him to the highest place, giving him the name above every name. Thank you that the name of Jesus speaks to our wounds, that Jesus is alive, that we have every good reason to believe. Amen.